Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the new series of Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a politician who grew up in Surrey in a three-bedroom house for a family of six with four dogs. A former classmate called him a near-Bolshevik bruiser with a Bay <laughs> City Rollers haircut. He worked as a human rights barrister before becoming an MP and rose through the ranks to become Director of Public Prosecutions before being awarded a knighthood in 2014. His progress into the establishment was completed when he was elected to Parliament the following year and in 2020 he became leader of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Thanks for having me. And Roy Jenkins famously said that Tony Blair was like this man carrying a precious Ming vase across a slippery floor ahead of the 1997 <laughs> general election. Do you feel a bit like that now? Yes, I think I do. You know, it's a very big prize winning a general election. And, you know, particularly for me, I came into politics sort of later in life, having done other things. And... Being in opposition is a complete frustration because, you know, you can vote, but if you're losing when you're voting, you're not really changing lives. So winning that election is is a precious, precious prize. You know, so it is difficult. It's We have to be careful. But that's been the position since I took over as leader of the Labour Party. So we've been on this journey for, what, two and a half years now, got a little bit further to run. And your shadow ministers have been taking masterclasses in how to be ministers. And I gather that you've been also talking to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. What advice have they given you about being prime minister? Well, I've been talking to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown for some time now because I wanted to make sure I understood how those years, two or three years before you go to the general election and hopefully win it, what that feels like, the pace, the policies, not so much. You know, that was a long time ago now, 94, 95, running into the 97 election. It was a long time ago, so you can't replicate the policies. But the pace, the way that we do politics, I have talked to them a lot about what that period felt like, what needed to be done when. I'm conscious, going back to the Shadow Cabinet, that we've been, unfortunately, out of power for 12 years. Mm. That means I don't have people around the Shadow Cabinet table who've got huge experience in government that's actually the same position that tony blair had going into 97 i think from memory he only had margaret beckett so i'm determined that we need to be prepared for government and ready to hit the ground running but look i'm very methodical about this and this frustrates some people i'm afraid i we, i picked up the labor party became leader on the 4th of april 2020 we just suffered our worst defeat since 35 and when I was elected, most people sort of shook me by the hand and said, good luck here. And then in the next breath said, it is not possible to do this in a five-year parliamentary term. All you can do is sort of begin the process. I never believed that, 
But I did know that I had to break the task into sort of three bits, really. The first bit was to change the party. If you lose that badly, you don't look at the electorate and say, what were you doing? Didn't you hear us? You look at the party and you say, we've got to change this party. So the hard work had to be sort of changing the party from day one. And one of the first calls I made 20 minutes or so after I was elected leader was to the general secretary that Jeremy Corbyn had appointed to tell her that we were parting company. So we had to go really hard and fast on that. The second bit then was to expose the government as not being fit to govern. We've been ably assisted in that over the last 12 months. And the third bit is if not them, then why you? And that's what we've been able to set out, particularly at our conference this year. And if you're in opposition, it's actually really hard to get heard. And there's a sort of lighthouse beam. It comes round only so often onto the opposition. It came onto us at conference and what it illuminated was a party that's changed, a party that has got the answers to the challenges the country's facing, and a party that's got the confidence to go into government. So the next bit is to make sure we're absolutely ready so that, you know, within that first 100 days, we can put into effect some of the changes that we desperately need. It is methodical. And I know that in years one and two, when we were at the early stages, people are saying, why don't you say more about what you're going to do? Where's the sort of bold ideas? And I said, till we've changed the party, till we've exposed the government, we can't get to the third place. But we're there now. And you've got your own version of a red box for all your papers. Do you sort of read that every day? Are you in training? And how do your family feel about it? Because they must be the other ones that you have to prepare mentally if they are going to get into number 10. Yeah, so I get a, uh, the equivalent, and which is all the papers that I've got to read, usually coming through in the evening, ready for the next day, papers to sign off, briefing papers, you know, what you would expect in a red box. That's not that unusual for me because obviously I was director of public prosecutions for five years and I had the equivalent then. So every day of the five years, I got my red box, my ministerial box of things that I had to read. So the usual pattern is to get home at whatever time it is and then open that and start working through those documents. So I'm used to that way of working. Obviously, what I need to do is make sure the whole team gets used to that way of working. And what about your family? Are they? How do they feel about it? Because it can be incredibly intrusive for the spouses and children of people who go into number 10. It is really impactful and I do think about this a lot our children are now our boy's 14 our little girl is 11 we've taken the decision collectively Vic my wife and I that we will protect them as far as we can so we don't use them in photo shoots I never actually say their names in public because I want them to have as much protection as they can but it is difficult and it's you know as I say our little girl's 11 her bedroom is on the front of our house and when there are sort of loads and loads of journalists outside the house sometimes for days on end it's really upsetting for her because mm -hmm. she's got to get out of that house get to school etc so it really does impact on them we try to you know run as normal a life as possible and the way we've done that is firstly to have designated time for our children so yeah. I do not want to be the man sitting in your studio or some other studio in 10 years time saying I wish I'd spent more time with my children now they're in their 20s yeah. because if you really want to spend more time with your children then do it so I've got a sort of rule of a hard stop on a Friday of six o'clock I won't be doing any work I'll be at home with the children 
On the odd occasions when I'm at home, when they come home from school, that is absolutely fantastic. So we do all that. And then with Vic, my wife, she doesn't do any interviews. She doesn't do any stuff, you know, where she's putting her views out into the public domain. She's got her own life. She works in the NHS. She's a very sassy woman. And we do, we've taken the decision that she doesn't want to be in the, in the limelight. She wants to get on with her life. Mm. We wanted to take you back to your childhood to find out what motivates you and you may have joined the establishment now, but it wasn't a privileged background that you had. You were the second of four children. Your mum was a nurse. Your dad was a toolmaker. But they were Labour Party supporters who named you after the party's first yes. parliamentary leader. That is extraordinary. That. What does the name mean to you? I mean, we don't actually call you Keir in the same way that we say Boris or Rishi. Would you like to just be known as Keir, do you think? Well, I am known as Keir by most people who know me. And I've, because Keir is relatively unusual, most of the time... People know me as Keir and they don't need to use my second name because I'm the only Keir that they know. I mean, my mum and dad did call me after Keir Hardy. I can't claim any credit for that. Obviously, I wasn't party to that decision. They were a, they were a Labour family. But, you know, things were yeah. tough at times. My dad worked in a factory all his life. My mum was a nurse. But, you know, she soon became too busy with four children and too ill to have to carry on working as a nurse or any other job and so it was tough it was you know one income from my dad running a family of four children and it was you know I'm not going to plead poverty or any greater hardship than anyone else but it was tough going at times and one of the things that helps me in the cost of living crisis we're going through now is knowing what it's like to struggle to make ends meet knowing what it's like in our case our phone was cut off because that was the amenity that it was easiest for us to have cut off rather than electricity or or any other form of energy so I do know what that feels like to have to make those decisions and have to lose something for a while whilst you can't pay for it and other bits and pieces around the house I mean it was a Peldash semi it was quite tight in there three mm. bedrooms six people how many um, in your bedroom me and my brother mm. and a bunk bed all our life. I mean, we didn't have room for two beds in the room. I'm, I'm not plead. I'm really not pleading poverty, and I didn't feel it to be honest at the time. I didn't think that this was odd, but I was in a bunk bed until I left to go to university because we didn't have space for two beds in the bedroom. And there were other things. You know, we didn't have the money to redecorate that often. You know, the carpet on the stairs was a bit threadbare. That I do remember because that was when we were sort of inviting people round. I was thinking, hmm, it does look a bit shabby. Mm. But I didn't. we didn't feel poor. We didn't feel put upon. It was just the way it was. But it does help, I think, when now trying to, you know, come up with the answers for people who are really, really struggling. And the cost of living crisis is absolutely dominant. Many people listening to this, many people this winter, worrying about how they can pay their bills. And I know what that feels like. Mm. And your mum also had this incurable condition called Stills disease. What were the symptoms of that? How did that affect her and you as a family? So it's a very aggressive, juvenile in her case, form of arthritis that started with her when she was 11. All her joints got inflamed. She couldn't walk. She has, was in hospital for a year when she was a teenager. And the prognosis was that it was so aggressive in her case, the immune system sort of turns on itself. She was told, you won't be walking after you're about 20, you'll be in a wheelchair, and you won't be able to have children. For my mum, that sounded like a challenge <laughs> that she was going to meet. She was helped by the fact that 
they discovered steroids as a drug that you could use in relation to Stills' disease. So she started on steroids when she was a teenager and uh, was, I think, the longest ever steroid patient in the country because she was on steroids for all of her life. The combination of that was that it delayed some of the aggressive parts of Stills' disease. So she had to have her knees replaced when she was in her 20s. She struggled a lot, but she did have children and she walked in her 20s. She was determined to have children. She had four children very, very quickly after she was married. Because she'd been told she desperately wanted children, she'd be told she wouldn't be able to have children. And therefore, she got on with it and had her children. But it was tough. She couldn't walk. She was very ill. And the steroids were, you know, partly fantastic because they allowed her to walk for longer than she would otherwise have been. They almost certainly allowed her to have children when she wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. But they, it, it was a, it's a tough price because the steroids themselves caused all sorts of problems with her body where she couldn't heal, she was very vulnerable. And every time she went into hospital, it was a crisis situation because she was very prone to any infection that was going around. And so we spent, you know, too much of our time as children in hospital with my mum in you know high dependency units worrying about whether she was going to pull through and you know I distinctly remember the first time I was told mum wasn't going to pull through when I was about 13 and it's it's very very tough as it happens she did but it was part of life it was part of what I guess gave me some of the characteristics I've got because my mum was hugely courageous as she was going through she would head towards it completely determined every time she had an operation every time she was nearly down and out she got back up determined to walk and she had this incredible thing where she never moaned about it so she could be in real pain and you could see the pain and she had painkillers every single day of her life and towards the end of her life she couldn't walk she couldn't really move her limbs she couldn't feed herself in the end, she couldn't speak, and this is one of the things that... I've, I've tried not to regret things in life, but the fact that our children didn't really know my mum because although she was still alive, she couldn't really move out of her bed and couldn't speak is is a big regret in my life. Mm-hmm. But she never moaned about it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ever asked her, obviously, until she didn't speak anymore, how she was, her stock answer was, I'm all right, how are you? Mm-hmm. And that has given... You know, if anything has given me determination encouraged or run towards a problem run towards a challenge and overcome it it's that's all come from that steely resolve from my mum and what was it like for your father because your relationship with him must have been very different but it also must have been very difficult for the whole family to pull together and not really have your mum around did he give you support as well it had a huge impact on my dad the wedding vow that he took to you know stand by my mum through you know, good health or ill, he took absolutely to heart and therefore he devoted himself to looking after my mum. Every single thing, if she couldn't walk, if she had any problems, he learned all of the drugs she needed. He learned all the symptoms she needed. He knew her illness and her difficulties better than anyone in the world and he made sure he was always there for her. It was incredible. Every single thing he did was focused on and channeled through her incredible support and she wouldn't have made it through without him she absolutely wouldn't have made it through without him he was by her side every single day if she was at the hospital he was at the hospital he would sleep on the benches in the hospital he wouldn't come back until she was out of the hospital it was an incredible devotion huge impact on his life 
Um, it did mean he was very focused on her and his relationship with us was more distant, if I'm honest. Mm. I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think that was a generational thing in a way. But he was arm's length. You know, if if we needed comfort or a smile or to be told we'd done well, that would come from mum. It wouldn't really come from dad. He was much more distant. But he carried something all his life, which I've thought about a lot recently. And that is, because he worked in a factory, he felt disrespected. He felt that he he hated a situation when people were around where people say, well, what do you do for a living? And so I say, well, I'm an accountant, I'm a lawyer, I'm a banker. And he would say, I work in a factory. And there'd be a sort of pause in the conversation. And he hated that. He could feel... And he was a toolmaker. He was a skilled man. And it's hard work, it's skilled work. But he felt that people didn't respect that. And that plus looking after and caring my mum led him to withdraw. So he didn't like having people around him. Because he, the more I think about it, he, he, I think he feared that pause in the conversation when he said what he did for a living. He didn't feel, and it drove a real sense of injustice in him. But it put distance, you know, between us. I kind of wish I'd, I feel I have, there's lots of conversations I didn't have with my dad. And that's hard. And it's, I, I've thought about this a lot more. I have to say, I've, since I've had children... <laughs> I've thought about this a lot more than I have done in, in the intervening years because I think about my own children and what sort of relationship I'm having with them and determined that it will be different, it will be closer, more physical, more engaging. Now, I'm sure they'll be on a show like this in 20 or 30 years and say, the problem with my dad is, you know, he wanted to be with us the whole time. You know, Every time on a Friday, he used to insist that we all stayed in. Yeah, But has it's it's caused me to think really hard about what it means to be a parent. But was he quite an angry person? Did you feel that he was quite angry as a father? Was he ever bullying or was it more just that he was very distant? Not bullying, but a deep sense of injustice. Yeah. And I think that my sort of political antennae were awoken by that sense of injustice, that this just wasn't, it wasn't right. Mm. And, and it's why a burning sort of sense that we have to be careful about respecting people, whatever they do. And it's really interesting for me because, of course, I was the first in my family to go to university. And my parents were really proud of that because they, for them, and this was the same for many, many, many families, I think, at the same time, their general rule of life was whatever the ups and downs, things will get better for our children. And it... and. You know, there were lots of ups and downs, actually, for them. But it comforted them, the sense that that was happening. So I go off to university. But what I've... Which is great and it'd been fantastic and, you know, really gave me an opportunity that I really wouldn't otherwise have had. But we do as a country, as a society, we, we put university up there and we don't put sort of skills, technical skills, on a sort of par. Mm-hmm. And I think that's totally wrong. And I always think of... My journey, my dad's journey. He was skilled. He was, you know, incredible thinking man. I went off to university, and if I was in the conversation that he feared, and people said, "What do you do for a living?" and I said I was a lawyer, there wouldn't be the gap. Mm. And that I'm determined 
we'll do something about. And you got into grammar school and your other siblings didn't go. Was that another difficulty? Did you find that embarrassing in any way? Or did you feel you had more of an obligation to pay something back to society? Or It's quite hard, isn't it, when you, when you go different directions in a family? Yeah, it was odd. I mean, in the sense that I was going to one school, the three of them were going to a, a different school. You know, when I get asked these questions... The, the truth is, I didn't really think about it that much at the time. It was different. They were in a different school, but we had different groups of friends. And I don't think that's that unusual. Did they tease you at all? Yeah, of course they did. You know, <laughs> going off to your school, da-da-da. Yeah, of course they did. Um, but, you know, go. Uh, the 11 plus was really... I didn't really know what the 11 plus was. We were sitting down at school and something was put in... Papers were put in front of us. And I didn't, I didn't have an expectation of getting through. Um, and one of the things about my childhood, which again is really important to me, is, and I tread carefully here, but my brother had real difficulties at school learning for one reason or another, therefore wasn't progressing as quickly as the rest of us. And my parents, my dad in particular, instilled in me that my brother's progress was just as impressive as mine. And he absolutely insisted. It's one of the reasons... I've always said before that he didn't... When we were growing up, he found it very hard to express pride or, or any emotion with us, really, but pride. But partly that was driven by this sense that he didn't want to say this progress is good and that progress isn't good. And it's instilled in me, firstly a sense of proportion. I didn't go swaggering around at school saying I'm going to be the Prime Minister or anything like that. I really didn't. I didn't well, even think I was going to be a politician. <laughs> but it's also made me, if anybody uses the word thick, the anger in me is profound, absolutely profound, because, you know, my brother did progress mm. just as far as I did, and that should never be forgotten. And do you think you've inherited or learned from your dad some of that sort of stiff upper lip version of masculinity because politicians are supposed to be able to emote and be kind of heart on sleeve do you think that's maybe why you don't do that so much there are things i've taken from him undoubtedly and he did find it very hard to express his emotions and didn't really do it very often other than the devotion to my mum you could see that you could that was a daily reminder of devotion and duty i think he probably gave me a real sense of duty and a sense of forbearance. There were many things we couldn't do because mum couldn't do them and he was never going to do it without her. Mm. So we went on holiday to the same ex-miners cottage in the Lake District year after year after year after year for two reasons. Mum loved it and two, she probably couldn't have got very far else. Have I you mean, ever been back? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We Well, we went up when my mum and dad were still alive mm. to, to stay with them up there. But, you know, we... My mum only once went on a plane in her whole life, and that was from London to Manchester on for a honeymoon uh, on the way, guess where, to the Lake District. Mm. Never been abroad, never had a passport. So there was a sense of forbearance, things we didn't do. There wasn't much money around, and mum couldn't do it, so we didn't do it. And so he's given me those qualities. But to your point on masculinity, I, I wouldn't say masculinity, but I think the men... Men have changed, actually, from my dad's generation. It's, mu it's not just me. The way I am with my children is much more common now. And that's a very, very good thing. Um, I don't think it's... 
I don't think it's about masculinity, but there is an element of, of men interacting differently as we go forward. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. We'll be back after this. associates you with donkeys as much as anything else which always fascinates me but you know a lot about donkeys yeah so uh, well um we had four dogs so each of the children got a dog and just picture what the scene called mine was called percy uh, don't ask me why what kind of dog is it now red setter oh. beautiful dog mm. um really i mean pretty half brain to be honest um <laughs> But um, fantastically beautiful dog. But just imagine the scene of the Starmer household going on holiday to the Lake District in a in a saloon car with mum and dad in the front, four children in the back and four dogs in the car and everything we needed for a couple of weeks in a cottage in the Lake District. So we were surrounded by animals all of the time. But my mum and dad were particularly devoted to donkeys and as they got older, they sort of collected donkeys. If there was a donkey that was in distress anywhere, 
I was going to say the south of England, but they'd probably go all over the country to rescue a donkey that they thought was in some danger of being badly treated. And in the end, they had four donkeys. And I've often joked that they, you know, they, as each of us left home, they effectively replaced us with a donkey. And, and, and they were great companion. I mean, my mum and dad absolutely loved donkeys. They were great companions for my mum and dad. When my mum could still walk... Um, she would hold on she would just hold on to the donkey to walk sort of a bit around the field behind us as a sort of something to stabilize her as she was still able to walk for my dad i think that you know that inability to express his emotion worked quite well with donkeys because (laughs) they didn't answer back they didn't ask for a lot but they do make an amazing noise don't they (laughs) do make amazing noise uh and they're incredible animals but yeah they were absolutely devoted to donkeys what did you learn for leading the labor party from Having been in charge of donkeys. Well, um, patience. I don't know whether either of you have had experience of trying to get donkeys to do something they don't want to do. (laughs) It's hard work. You've got to be patient. You've got to know where you're going. You've got to cajole and gently get them to where you need to be. I'm sure there's quite a lot of political lessons in that. (laughs) And you also played a ridiculous number of instruments as a child. So the flute, the piano, the violin, the recorder. And you had lessons with Norman Cook, who went on to become the (laughs) very famous DJ Fat Boy Slim. Slim. So do you ever think you could have become a musician? Do you wish you had at one level? Uh, I don't ever think I could have done. Mm. I you must have been quite practiced hard and I got to be a junior exhibitioner at the Guildhall School of Music. So from 11 years onward, uh, on, I came to 18, I came up to London every Saturday to the Guildhall School of Music. It was just through hard work, basically. Or yeah, it was hard work. And a lot of, it was, no, no, no. Hard work and practice. But what I learned when I got there was that... I was never going to be able to do this as a career because there were really talented people, just people who had an incredible ability. So I'd got there through practice and hard work, but then it goes to another level um, and really, really talented people. And I knew then that I was never going to be able to be good enough to be a musician. I'm not sure I really wanted to be. I enjoyed doing it. It's given me a lifelong love of music. Um, listen to a lot of pop music, of course, but a lot of classical music I listen to partly because I did so much of it when I was growing up when I was at Guildhall School of Music. Um, And there are other skills. This is why I think it's really important for schools. If you're playing in an orchestra or a quartet, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter what your instrument is, you've got to make eye contact with someone because you've all got to do something at the same time. You've got to work as a team. There are skills there which go way beyond music, and that's why, amongst other reasons, I think that we should do much more of creative arts at school because these are the skills, these are the subtle skills, if you like, that children need to go into, you know, modern day work. And you graduated first from Leeds and then Oxford in law. How did you choose law? Was it because you wanted to follow this sort of established path? Did it seem a very serious sort of middle class professional? Did you actually want to just change the world? No, so I wanted to change the world. So when I was a teenager, I joined the Labour Party. I got very into politics. And i I wanted to really go into politics. And it was my mum and dad who said, no, um, you need to get a decent job. (laughs) Um, And law was, I mean, we talked about it, but it was sort of their idea. To be honest, I didn't really know what going into law meant. Um, I didn't know any lawyers. Mum and dad didn't have any friends who were lawyers. I'd never met a lawyer. I didn't, what does a solicitor do, a barrister do? I don't think I knew that when I arrived at university. But I did law because everybody had decided this, and I decided that this was one way of sort of channeling a bit of the um, politics through legal cases. Mm. 
but in something which is much more stable than politics. And then I got to Leeds. I love Leeds, by the way. It's fantastic. And it was... I mean, I think everybody who goes to university has this experience of living somewhere else. But for me, going from a relatively small town, rural area, to go to Leeds, uh, a city in, in Yorkshire, was absolutely fantastic. Sort of blew my mind with all the different experiences I'd never had before. I loved doing law. I really found it fascinating. And changed from an initial view that I'd probably go and be a solicitor, probably in Leeds, I thought, at that stage. I even did interviews with law firms in Leeds to then thinking, no, I like this too much. I want to probably become an advocate, but I want to do a bit more study of law, which is what I did at Oxford. But um, supposed to be the inspiration for Bridget Jones's dishy human rights lawyer boyfriend, Mark Darcy. Do you think you might have been? And do I you... no idea. Have you ever met um, Colin Firth, who played him in the film? No, I haven't. I have no idea. I've been asked so many times and... <laughs> My Would answer you like always to be. Oh, it'd be great to be on one of them. But look, one I of those just Christmas don't know. Jumpers, because that's I think. No, I said there, <laughs> are, certain, there are, are certain things I wouldn't do. So probably that dashes the whole idea of it. <laughs> was it hard switching from being a criminal defence barrister to being chief prosecutor as director of public prosecutions? It's a bit like going from poacher to gamekeeper. Is it a different sort of mindset? Y- yes. But there's been a sort of journey on this for me. And it, it, it's the journey that, because people often ask me, well, what was it then that took you from being a lawyer into politics? And it, it was a journey that started pretty early, actually, in my career, because I started as a lawyer doing individual cases, employment casing, housing cases for an individual, one individual at a time, sorting out the injustice in their particular case. And um, then, not by accident, but I sort of stumbled upon the death penalty. Now, obviously, you know, having studied law at Leeds, I realised we didn't have the death penalty in this country. But um, many people, I don't think, appreciate that for the former colonies that are now independent, in particularly in the Caribbean and Africa, there's a right of appeal to a court in London still that's been written their constitution for a very, very long time. So a few years into practice as a lawyer, I suddenly got a case on behalf of someone on death row in Jamaica. And I had to go down to the Privy Council, then used to be in Downing Street, to argue for the life of this man in Jamaica who had no money but was facing death by hanging. I then did very many of those cases and took the decision that the individual battles needed to be won, but there was a strategic battle that needed to be won as well. And we formed a team that fought these cases strategically here and in the Caribbean, eventually in Africa as well, on behalf of many hundreds of people in the end who were on death row in each of those countries. And that took me away from the individual into strategic, you know, how do you achieve something for a bigger group of people, if you like? It also you know, instilled in me what tough decisions are like, because people often say, well, you want to be prime minister, do you know how to make a tough decision? And my answer to that is, if you sat in a cell in a Caribbean jail with someone who's going to live if you get the argument right in their case and die if you don't. That's a pretty, Mm. um, that focuses the mind on what you've got to do. From that, I then developed uh, into how else do I work strategically? And I went to work in Northern Ireland with the police service in Northern Ireland. Under the Good Friday Agreement, the old RUC was becoming the police service of Northern Ireland. And part of that involved people like me going across to implement the change that was needed. So that took me away from individual cases, much closer to policy and politics and how do you make change at a bigger scale. And from that, then the transition into becoming Director of Public Prosecutions was 
much more natural, if you like, which is how do you deliver justice for very many and people, hundreds of thousands of people across the whole of England and Wales. And that is a learn, you know, to go for an individual case where you've got a team of four um, through strategic teams into then having, you know, 7,000 staff and being responsible for hundreds of thousands of decisions was a big step. Um, but it was a step on the way to this sense that if you want to affect change, you've sort of got, got to go up the whole time. And from that, I could see the only way to affect some of the change I thought we needed was then to go into politics. Become Prime Minister. And become Prime Minister. Although when I came into politics in 2015, um, if we'd had this interview then and you'd asked me if I was going to be Prime Minister, I was, I'd have said no. Mm. I didn't. It's, it's really you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I've never had, you know, some people say, oh, when I was 14, I knew I wanted to be Prime Minister. Not with me. Mm. And there's, there is something serious here that I do think is really important. And it's, it, it's about me, but it's not really about me. So just bear with me. The reason I wouldn't have said when I was 14 that I want to be Prime Minister is because I didn't particularly think that people like me would ever be Prime Minister. I didn't think people like me would be a politician because I came from a very ordinary working-class background. My aspiration was the same as many working-class children, which is, you know, get a decent job, get a decent house, you know, get on in life. But I didn't think that someone like me would be Prime Minister. So I didn't think it then. I didn't think it in 2015 when I came in. I never had that sort of arrogant swagger. But I do say to children now when I go into schools, either in the constituency now, more across the country, don't be held back by that thought because it worries me that some children today, I can see it where the biggest barrier to their aspiration is a little thing in their head that says that's not for children like me mm. it's really it's a really powerful thing and that's why i want lots of exposure for children in schools to everything that's going on around them not not just a narrow curriculum of you know can you pass this exam mm. but the experience of knowing i didn't know a lawyer so i didn't think i was going to be a lawyer there'll be millions of children out there who don't aspire to be things that they would be brilliant mm. at because they don't know about it and something in their head is holding them back and that that for me is very very powerful and you're not actually Keir, you're Sir Keir, aren't you? What yes. was it like getting on night? Were you embarrassed at all? Or was it rather amazing going to Buckingham Palace with your family? And, Look, um, it was amazing. I mean, the first thing is... Did you take the dogs and the donkeys? Yeah. That's what we want to know. <laughs> I got a knighthood for services to law, mainly because I was the Director of Public Prosecutions for five years and also a little bit because of some of the other stuff I'd done on the death penalty and other changes to the law along the way, including Northern Ireland. Um, among the reasons that it was important to me was, um, firstly, for my staff. If you are one of the 7,000 members of the Crown Prosecution Service and your boss gets recognised, he in my case, but whoever it is, is getting recognised because of the work that you've done. Because, And that's really important. They were proud, they were vicariously proud of the fact that their boss is getting this award. Partly for my mum and dad, because for them to see that and they you know they they have described going to the palace when i got it as the proudest day of their lives but it, it you know by then my mum couldn't walk um uh, it really wasn't very well at all so they had to drive up they couldn't have got there any other way and my dad of course with his devotion to my mum had adapted the car so there was a pulley and a, and a, a special sort of crank and lift to get my mum into the car he, he always adapted everything for her got her into the car, drove up and, you know, it was life was, their, their approach was simple, we'll drive up and we'll drive into Buckingham Palace. <laughs> what's, what's the issue? So they just um, drove they up just to the drove gate. They just drove up to the gate 
Um, because they were so devoted to their dog, they had a great day, and they always had a great day. Um, <laughs> they and they and the dog is very important. Well, we can't leave the dog at home, so they stuck the dog in the back of the car because that was the natural thing to do. And arrived at the gate, and I said I'd meet them outside, and they'd see this car. And I'm thinking, are they really just thinking they're going to drive through the gate? They got the dog in the back. There's about four or five police officers around them. The dog starts barking. The car starts. It's a, a when a great dane barks, it's a lot of noise. The car starts rocking from side to side, and the police officers thinking, "What is this? What are the corgis and, doing?" Exactly, the corgis in. As it happens, um, it was Prince Charles, as he then was, who was giving me my knighthood. But um, not they. Not only did they manage to get in with the dog in the back. They then managed to um, persuade one of the royal household to sit by the car to look after the dog in case the dog was lonely. <laughs> or in case so, it peed everywhere. Yeah, well, a moment, or got out, I suspect, and caused havoc. But um, such was their devotion to the dog and such was their... They didn't think this was odd. Well, we're going to the palace, we'll put it, the dog in the back of the car and we'll drive through the front gate. What's the issue? <laughs> but so, but it, was a, it was an amazing um, day. And, and, and as I say, they said it was one of their proudest days. And... That meant a lot to me. Do you think it's a disadvantage in politics, though? Because there is this kind of mismatch between your actual background and the perception. What, why do you think that is? I think it's for a number of reasons. Until I became a politician, people didn't ask me that much about my background. I didn't constantly get quizzed, you know, what, 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 you know, what do your dad and mum do for a living? It is important in politics because people need to know who you are, what's your background, what motivates you, if you like. So, but because I've never been asked really until I came into politics, I've always been a bit reticent um, about it. I've become better now, um, but my initial instinct was to sort of clam and not want to talk about my mum and dad or how I grew up and what it was like. So, but I think, you know, the more people... No, they'll form their own views. People listening to this will form their own views. They may resonate, some of it may resonate, some of it may not. I mean, but I think at least knowing what it is, is important and people can form their own views on it. And, it, you know, there are there are points of, it is very important, I think, for a politician to understand what it's like for millions of people in the difficulties and struggles and challenges that they have in their lives and their aspirations. And their, you know, you know, we're, we're always, particularly in Labour, sort of, tend to talk in terms of struggle and challenge but actually aspirations and opportunities most people want to get on mm. and want to do well and they want their children to do well if they've got children and angela rayner told us on past imperfect i overshare Keir undershares and there has been something in that and and i think it is difficult as a lawyer isn't it but you both suffered these traumas as children you both had difficult childhoods and in a way i think it made her more emotive and you less so. Why do you think that? Do you think it was because your family just did hold their emotions in? I think it was partly my family holding them in and I suppose I sort of adapted and, and adopted that to some extent. Um, I do think there are different ways of being emotional. I mean, I'm really passionate about the change that we need to bring about and that drives me forward. When do you cry? Um, usually in relation to family issues and, um, you know, my immediate family and this uh, this unconditional love that I have for my children. I know everybody has it, but you, you, I didn't understand it until I had children. You know, we've gone through really difficult things sometimes. In the middle of the leadership campaign when I was running to be leader of the Labour Party, my, um, my wife's mum had an awful accident and um, was in intensive care uh, until she died and 
with my own mum, I've seen intensive care many, many times. I know what it looks like. Um, but this was really, really awful. Uh, Vic and her mum were very, very close, and it was really hard to see this. I found it very hard because it was not me. I'd been mm. actually through it. But it weird, weird thing to say, I know, and bear with me. But I had lost, at that stage, I lost my mum uh, two weeks or so before I became an MP. Um, so she never saw me sworn in. Um, I'd lost my dad, um, and that was difficult because of the relationship and just knowing, in, in a sense, how, how, how what does this end mean? But seeing somebody else go through it was, in a sense, much harder because it was how do I reach and comfort when I could see what it was doing to her? It was really, really hard. And sometimes people ask, well, you know, what's your sort of, um, game face or political face that that was real that was one of the most difficult periods and that's you know was emotional highly emotional but somehow and other politicians have had to do this you've got to flick so I remember being you know backstage about to go on for a big hustings um, and Vic was on the phone obviously very 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 upset about what was happening and you know moments later I was to sort of go on the stage <laughs> And, um, and you know, have a smile and be positive and this is what we're going to do. And, and that's why some of the absolutely daft questions we get, like, you know, what's the most exciting thing you... Which I, I got in those hustings. I was going through this with Vic and our kids, huge. And then I got this daft question, what's the most exciting thing you've done? And it drove me up the wall. I just said, look, um, I'm trying to be the best husband and the best dad I can be just at the moment. And I just haven't got time for this question. You know, people just have to judge on that. And that's why some of these questions are a bit mad. But so there's a, I mean, most of that emotion for me comes from that place. Mm. But Angela's a different, but I mean, Angela's, my, my relationship with Angela is really, I'm so fond of Angela and we do get on really, really well because we are different. Mm. We come at things differently and that actually works. But Angela's an incredible person. I mean, her story is a story of real inspiration, mm. I think, for many, many, many people, particularly women something really interesting about the number of politicians who have overcome some kind of trauma in childhood. And Tony Blair said to us he thought it was a spur to success, that there was something that drove you on beyond uh, other people. Do you, why do you think it is? I mean, more than half of prime ministers have lost a parent in, in childhood uh, and even more have had some kind of trauma. Why do you think that is? What is it that people are looking for a kind of external endorsement? Is it that people are kind of have an ambition sort of forged in fire? I think it's probably different for everybody, but it, it may instill a sense of change and getting out there and doing something. For me, I suppose, I, I, I didn't plot out my life story. I just walked towards the next challenge. And every time I walked towards it, um, the challenge got bigger. It sort of got elevated and elevated as I went through life. And I walked towards the next challenge, but I didn't... Now I look back on the things I've done, I would never have predicted earlier in my life that I'd have done half of those things. So for, that, and that may be different to other people who may have had a, a much stronger sense of destiny. Um, I've just, I, this is probably my mum in me, which is walk towards the challenge um, and do something about it. And th that, that goes back to this whole question of emotion and passion and um, what drives you. What that means for me and this is, I've, I found this very much in politics because the transition from law to politics is a very odd one because you're, you know, you're used to a courtroom with evidence, with rules, with rationality, with a decision. 
and suddenly you go to politics where none of that really counts very much. Um, but what I can't stand is people who walk round and round a problem and may be very eloquent and people say, fantastic speech. But the number of people who give fantastic speeches describing the same problem without actually fixing mm. it drives me up the wall. And, you know, that's that's where my passion is, which is actually let's let's identify what the problem is. Let's be really accurate about what needs to change. Let's just get on and do it uh, rather than talking about it. So, uh, but I think that's a bit of, that's a bit of my mum's sort of determination and a bit of my dad's pragmatism, which is, you know, in the same way that he adapted the car so that so my mum could get in and out. He had trolleys, he had pulleys and things across the room in which she slept in the end so he could get around in and out of bed. He had, he just adapted to the challenge. And do you think it's harder for Rishi Sunak to be Prime Minister being so rich in some ways? I mean, I know we joke about the sort of Prada shoes on the building site, but there, there is a sense in some ways, isn't there, that it, it's quite hard because you become quite distant from people when you have that much wealth. Yeah, I don't think... I mean, I wouldn't say that wealth or rich is is an impediment. I mean, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. There are plenty of people who've got, you know, quite a lot of money, a lot of money, who absolutely get it and understand. So I, I do think he's out of touch. I don't think he I don't think he really understands what it's like for the millions of people who are suffering at the moment. I don't think he's got a sense of that. I wouldn't I don't, you know, I wouldn't go for the wealth or richness because actually as I say I know plenty of wealthy and rich people who do absolutely get it. I think it's uh, something deeper for him. I just don't think that he can empathize um with that and and that's why people remember the filling up somebody else's car and not being able to know how you pay for petrol. It is such a... On one level, you'd say, well, it's just a small thing, you know. All politicians, in the end, make mistakes that we all laugh at, and that's true, including myself, and we have to be ready for all that laughter that other people enjoy. But it told a story, I think, that people remember that. They they tell it back to me. If you don't know how to fill up your car and you don't know how to pay for it, then you're probably not in touch with my life. Do you think he's a better Prime Minister, though, than Boris Johnson or Liz Truss? There is a bit more competence back in Downing Street. Well, I mean, it's a pretty low bar, isn't it? Um, <laughs> he's he's different. With Boris Johnson, it was all about character. It was over-promising something, not really delivering on it, and then descending into character the whole time. You know, I think Boris Johnson not delivering really, really was the most frustrating thing. And, I, you know, let's not make this party political. Do you think it's a problem, though, that the Tories now have had three female leaders and the first non-white prime minister? And, and Labour sort of alternates between white men from different bits of North London. Or do you think that slur about sort of North Londoners is actually rather ridiculous? Uh, the, the North London slur is absolutely ridiculous, mm. utterly ridiculous. The enemies um, of growth. It's just ridiculous. I mean, I've worked across the whole of the country all my life. When I was head of the Crown Prosecution Service, I had 7,000 staff in every single county in England and Wales, and I worked with them in their offices across the whole of England and Wales. It is absolutely ridiculous attack. But the, but the more important question in a way was, we do need a female leader of the Labour Party. We really do. We've done fantastic things. I've got really powerful women around me. If you look at, you know, Rachel Reeves, Yvette Cooper, Angela Rayner, Lisa Nandy, Bridget Phillipson, got really incredibly brilliant, powerful women. But does the Labour Party need a woman leader? Yes, it does. So your successor um, should be a woman? Well, yes. I mean, you know, ideally, we'll have to see what the circumstances are. But yes, of course, that, you know, I don't think we should shy away from that challenge at all. And are you thinking about a reshuffle or do you think the current team is 
right as it is. Will you will you change it at all before the next election? Well, the current team's really good. And um, we did a reshuffle just about this time last year. And we've got really good people out there. And I think most people way beyond our own party would say that Labour's got some really powerful advocates now out there on the airwaves, out there making the case for us. Do you feel a bit like a football manager? I'd say player manager. <laughs> Arsenal, of course. Football drives me, you know, if, if there's one period of the week that is absolutely protected, it's when I play football at the weekend in an eight-side game for 90 minutes with people I've played football with for a very, very long time. But, yeah, player manager, I think I'd say, rather than <laughs> But you're very tribal about your politics because, actually, some people say they could never be friends with the Tories, some Labour left-wingers, you know, and they're all those badges, never kissed a Tory. Are you like that or do you want well, to... I've broken that rule. Right. Um, um, Are we allowed to ask with who? No. Um, but, look, I'm not tribal. I think this actually comes from uh, coming into politics later in life. Outside of politics, most of the time, most people at home or at work see a problem, get people round and try to fix it and bring people together, bridge people together and do it. And that's what I bring to politics. Therefore, I've worked cross-party. I'm on very good terms with many, many Tory MPs. I'm not ashamed about it. And I've got very good friends who are Tories, um, and they've been very, very good friends of mine for a very, very long time, and long may that last. And looking back at yourself, when you were sitting by your mum's hospital bed when you were 10, and it all really looked so bleak and she was in real pain, what do you wish you'd known then that you now know? The power of change, and now you've said that, the, 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 I mean, there was one occasion when I went into the high dependency unit when we thought we were going to lose mum, and there were four or five nurses with images on the bed, keeping her alive with, with various, um, you know, injections, machines, moving her, keeping her alive. It was most moving incredible thing to see and after hours mum survived and I thought you know, I've got to thank the nurses <laughs> it's just these these things you do and it's hard to find the words to do that and th their response was this is this is this is what we do <laughs> And I just realised at that moment that for me, this was the most incredible emotional thing. They'd just saved my mum's life. They were doing that every night, every night. And that was during a period where, because of the death penalty work I was doing, I was with the team receiving awards for the work we were doing because we were saving people's lives. So I was getting awards, being recognised, going on stages. And these nurses were doing that every single night and every day. And not they weren't noticed, but we were not properly, it goes back to this business with my dad, properly respecting what they were doing. And I've carried that with me ever since. Keith Starmer, thank you very much for talking to us on Past Imperfect. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. With Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, Sakir Starmer. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. 
you enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please go to the Times Radio app where you can download our interviews with guests including Angela Rayner, Tony Blair, Wes Streeting, Sasha Javid and Ruth Davidson. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.